see more innovation in packaging and processing at Pack Expo International than anywhere else in the world. It's the show that defines where the industry is headed, with the solutions that define where your business can go. Discover cutting-edge packaging technology, processing equipment, new materials, sustainable solutions, supply chain resources, and much, much more. You'll walk away with innovative solutions to challenges big and small. Register at PackExpoInternational.com. You're listening to Unpacked with PMMI, where we share the latest packaging and processing industry insights, research, and innovations to help you advance your business. Hi, I'm Sean Riley, and welcome to another edition of Unpacked with PMMI. PMMI's association services provide management services to packaging and processing industry associations, including the Association for Contract Packagers and Manufacturers, the Institute of Packaging Professionals, and the Cold Pressure Council, just to name a few. Recently, while recording some content to help fill the void created by the COVID-19 cancellation of CPC's annual meeting, we discovered some topics that might just be of interest to our listeners over here at Unpacked for PMMI. Here, we get a little scientific with Ben Howard, Laboratory Director at Certified Laboratories Incorporated. Our goal was to get Ben to explain shelf life, shelf life testing, and shelf life studies in terms even I could understand. With that, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Ben. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, I, I know this is this is kind of going to be a broad um, question to start out with, but for those that are listening to this podcast, they might have a limited background in our industry. They might have a limited background in processing. Maybe they are trying to learn more about it. To start us out, describe to us what is shelf life testing. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's um, it is it is a broad term. It can mean. Uh, somewhat different things to people across different industries or, or even sub-industries within one. So, for instance, you know, like uh, might mean something slightly different to a meat manufacturer than someone who's in produce or manufactured uh, foods in the, under the larger industry of food industry. Uh, but, but a common working definition would be uh, it's a series of analyses that are performed over time to better characterize changes that occur in a product. And the intended purpose is to determine how long the product will remain fit for purpose or for consumption at a particular storage condition or multiple conditions. And, uh, and that part's pretty straightforward. And I think, I think intuitive to most people, uh, when you go about designing and executing a shelf life study, that's when you have a uh, variety of philosophies and, and industry specific approaches and nuance that, uh, you need to sort through. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. So then kind of playing off of a more broad thing like that, why is it important? You know, why, if I don't know what shelf life testing is, why is shelf life important? Couldn't we just, you know, evaluate the odor, the taste, um, what it looks like to determine whether something is spoiled? Uh, let's start with the first question. Um, so, so simply put, consumers buy a yucky product, they're significantly less likely to buy it again, right? So it's brand protection at its, at its you know, most base uh, level. Too many marketing business people can attest to, you know, it takes years and years to gain you know uh, a widespread customer loyalty i mean it could take sure. you know, years of development and, and um effort to, to get people over the product but you could lose it all in a day right there was a consumer survey from 2005 
uh, where they ask consumers to rate uh, the importance of different aspects of uh, food purchase and freshness and quality were the number two and three most important factors behind only price. You know, undoubtedly, it's it's highly advisable uh, for people to know with precision just how long the product is going to remain of high freshness and quality uh, and any storage condition it might be subjected to. You know, so so the importance is, uh, amongst many other things, principally, it's about, it's about brand protection. It's about making sure that what you put on the shelves, you can be confident that it's going to remain something that, that you're proud of, that you want consumers to, to take, that they're going to have a positive experience from. Uh, as to the sensory question, uh, why don't we just perform sensory? Why isn't there anything beyond that? couple thoughts. First, if if the options were to either perform sensory only evaluation or, or no evaluation whatsoever, uh, I would definitely take the former. At least you have some semblance of data to help you know determine your shelf life. You have, you have some sort of evidence that the product can last as long as, as you claim it does. And in fact, in days past, that was a more common approach that you just perform sensory, you know, to hack with the analytics, and uh, and that was that. More recently, that's given by more recent, I mean within the last several decades, it, it's uh, become more of a data centric and analytical process. That being said, sensory evaluation is still to this day, and I and I think for the foreseeable future and perhaps forever after. Uh, is an important aspect of shelf life. If you're going to go through the process of designing a shelf life, it, it should necessarily, um, in 100% of cases, contain a sensory evaluation component to it. Um, that Now, that should be paired with the analytical data because each of those helps to give additional context to the other. Analytical data is to say the analytical data is enhanced by the sensory data and the um, relative to the analytical. But but the reason for generating the analytical data and collating that with a sensory or numerous foremost is the uh, additional statistical robustness of the data set and the additional precision and confidence that it, that affords in terms of making a shelf life projection. You know, it also allows the holder of the data to better understand the potential uh, points of failure with the product, where it's likely to meet an end shelf life or where the highest risk of premature uh, shelf life end lies. And uh, it also allows someone to potentially take proactive action to mitigate that risk. Further, if the product does fail uh, in the course of its shelf life, that is to say it goes bad before you're hoping it did. It provides a clear and analytical explanation as to how it failed and often a very conclusive answer as to why it failed, which allows you to take action if you wanted to extend that shelf life. If you only got 50 days and you wanted 60, it'll give you the data you need in order to go about finding the means to extend that. Interesting, another reason I think that's more commonly being cited when people come to us and ask for, for a shelf life is the marketing value of all things. Having a completed uh, shelf life report, you know, with a full description of how it was done, the analytical data set, uh, a third party uh, scientific opinion as to what that data suggests regarding its shelf life can go a long ways in impressing co- both commercial and you know, residential consumers at the you know, scientific approach, you know, the, the, the rational approach and the data behind the determination of something like a shelf life. And furthermore, some distributors and retailers today require evidence of a shelf life evaluation before they'll even stock the brand. Um, in this case, it's primarily for their own brand protection. They don't want to stock product that has a risk of, of going bad because that would hurt the retailer as much as the manufacturer. Okay, so how's the shelf life testing performed? Is it, you know, I, I, it can't be the same for every product type. So give us an overview on how it's performed. Yeah, so, um, you know, as mentioned, there's uh, many ways to approach uh, shelf life study design and execution. The, the permutations of that are uh, virtually limitless theoretically limits, but but uh, in reality, there's a lot of commonalities in study design. Many manufacturers have, you know, kind of a default or legacy approach and uh, certainly third party laboratories. Uh, often have, you know, kind of defaults depending on the product type. Uh, templates is what they're often referred to as. But one of the most important parts of shelf life testing is to get an understanding of the details, the specific details uh, of the product, uh, the circumstances of that product. 
and let the study design follow. That is to say, you, sh you should really know when you engage in these sort of things, you should know the product's formulation, its intrinsic factors, things like pH and water activity and, and fat content. You need to know the process by which it's made. You know, is it thermal? Is it HPP? You know, is it cold pressed? Uh, the packaging configuration is absolutely critical. Uh, things like, is it, is it vacuum sealed product? Is it, is it an oxygenated headspace? Is it gas flush? Storage conditions are uh, very, a very large factor. Is it, is it a refrigerated product? Is it frozen? Is it sort of room temperature, shelf stable? Uh, how prone it is to abuse conditions in uh, transportation and storage? Are there points at which if it is a refrigerated product where it, um, with some predictability, may fall out of that refrigeration, uh, refrigerated state? Uh, what sort of preservative systems are present? History of prior spoilage? Nutritional claims? You know, is there a vitamin claim on the product, especially a, uh, a degradable vitamin? that may in fact determine the shelf life. Anyways, all that information should be gathered up front. And then once you have that information, the study design actually follows it, right? It's sort of, it's sort of a logical conclusion of the summation and collation of those factors. You know, and some examples are, you know, is, is the product vacuum packed? Uh, if yes, you should focus on anaerobes in terms of microbial spoilage. Doesn't mean you don't look at aerobes at all, but you know, anaerobes are going to be the focus. Is the project refrigerated? If yes, you should look at psychotropes, organisms that are capable of growing under refrigerated conditions. Does it have a water activity below 0.6? If so, you can cut some of the microanalysis. It's not gonna be the cause of spoilage. You know, focus on chemical. You know, is it a high fat product that's frozen? Uh, if, if yes, you're gonna look at oxidative rancidity, uh, moisture loss and sensory, and, and you know, again, truncate the micro. The vitamin declaration. Um, you know, what's that value? Is it a degradable vitamin? Is it likely that that vitamin will fall below its label claim before other end of shelf life metrics are seen? So anyways, those are sort of the, the considerations and the parameters. And, and typically, you know, I can speak from a, from a third party laboratory's point of view, we usually have a conversation with the customer when they when they want to proceed with a shelf life evaluation. The first part is us asking the questions and getting the information regarding the factors mentioned. And then the second half is usually us explaining to them what their options and our recommendations are based on that. So with that, though, I mean, do I have options when I, so I got a product and I, I'm coming to you and I, do I have options with this shelf life um, study design or is it something where there's, you know, kind of a hard and fast template or rules that kind of define how the study is going to go? Yeah, well, uh, uh, flexibility is key. Um, you know, despite considering, well, being considered uh, one of the simpler study types, uh, especially in food, uh, there's a heck of a lot of nuance to consider. I mean, as illustrated in the answer to the other question, um, you know, there, there's lots of factors that, that are in play. Um, uh, and in some cases, there's quite a bit of elective option in terms of the design and execution. The options you have come with different cost benefits, you know, but some common ones are like the, the number of lots to be tested, the time points uh, and number of time points, uh, number of replicates uh, of samples tested per time point. Uh, these things are adjusted to balance the cost and the robustness of the data set. You know, they're kind of on a continuum. You know, obviously going with the minimum number of all these parameters would, would reduce the cost. It'll give you the lowest cost, but it may compromise the reliability of the data set. Certainly there'll be some sacrifices to the significance of it. You know, reducing the time points could artificially shorten the shelf life. You know, for example, if you wanted, if you had a product that you wanted to say have a hundred day shelf life claim on and in an effort, in an effort to reduce cost, you, you did uh, just a, a day zero, a day 15, a day, a hundred and you find out that a day a day 50 it was it passed but a day 100 it failed well you would default back to the day 50 shelf life so your shelf life becomes 50 days whereas if you did something more like a, a 0 25 50 75 and 100 time points you might have find that it passed the 75 day mark before it failed on its way to 100 in which case
case, you just increase your shelf life by 50% by adding those you know, two time points. You know, and then it goes on and on. I mean, you, you know, every 10 days, you might have found, found that it made it to day 80 or 90, again, increasing your shelf life. Of course, adding those time points adds costs, right? It's more analysis that needs to be performed, more product that needs to be made and stored. Uh, so really, it's about it's about uh, understanding that cost benefit when, when deciding where you want these elective parameters. As a study design consultant, my philosophy is to provide as much information as possible regarding the cost and benefit of these options you know, so the decision makers can make an informed decision about the study design. Ultimately, it's it's the principle behind the study, the decision maker's responsibility to, to choose these things. And um, they just need to know like what sort of uh, consequences there may be to making a decision on any one of these parameters. So I could come to you with a product and I, I want it to be on the shelf for 25 days and you can give me the, you can say, okay, well, I can set it from zero to 25 and that might be your most cost effective you know, way of doing it. But that's not going to tell you that maybe it, you can make it to 20, but it's not going to make it to 25 because you haven't paid for those parameters leading up to it. You know, it, there, there is something of game theory behind this, you know, and I'm, and I'm not suggesting a shelf life study as any sort of uh, alternative to other forms of, of gambling that we already have in society. But there is something of a gamble to it. Uh, if you were highly confident in, in, in the example you gave, if you were highly confident you get to 25 days and you wanted, you wanted to do the least amount of analysis uh, to get there, you know, you could just do three time points, you know, zero, like 12 and, and 25. Uh, you could do a zero and 25, by the way, but there's there's a really good reason why you don't just do a beginning and end time point. Uh, it has to do with changes that can occur within that window that you would not be able to capture uh, that will render a spoiled product. There are certain factors that go up and then down again after the product spoils. But if you want to do the minimum and you want to do three time points, you know, you could do it uh, and that reduce your cost. If, if you were less certain about the shelf life of the product, you may add some additional time points in there to be sure that if you don't reach your sort of pie in the sky and hopeful endpoint in terms of shelf life, you, you're, you're not confident you reach your 25 days. You may build in, you know, a day 20 and a day 22, et cetera, just to try and maximize whatever the shelf life becomes. Okay. How about I, I come to you and I have something that I've, I have no idea. Can I, you know, how do I do it if it's open-ended? I want to know when it's going to spoil. Yeah. So we, I mean, we've dealt with the, the, the truly, I actually have no idea what the shelf life of this is. Can you help me? In which case, uh, given, given our experience, we can, we can help make an educated guess based on all the information that we, we discussed previously, the packaging, condition, storage, how it's processed, product in terms of factors, etc. Um, you can help make an educated guess and then work with them to streamline the study so that we can maximize their shelf life claim uh, while at the same time trying to keep the, the cost low. Oftentimes to do that, uh, you, you pick sort of a, you know, again, it's, it's a hopeful and, and idyllic uh, target in terms of the shelf life and you backload the time points. So you increase the frequency with which it's tested towards the end of the study, knowing that as you get closer to that end point, the, the closer you get to that end point, the more likely the product is to actually spoil. And uh, and that's really how we're about doing it. Now we also deal with on the other end of the spectrum, we, we deal with clients who are very familiar with, with shelf life analysis, uh, you know, are considered experts, particularly in their products. Uh, and they come to us with the parameters that they want to run. Um, either because they've done their homework and, and this is what they know that they need, or they have you know a 20-year history of doing shelf lives on similar products, and they want to follow the same uh, template for continuity reasons and and anything in between as as far as consultation is available. Interesting. Okay, fair enough. All right, this is going to be the the most technical thing or whatever that I will ask, <laughs> and we'll use it to kind of wrap up because we've already taken a good amount of your time. Um, so this, I, I've heard of things, um, I guess it's accelerated shelf life studies. Are they, is this a reliable way of estimating product shelf life or, you know, can you give some insight on, on how reliable those are? 
Oh, sure. Uh, by the way, uh, that is one of the most frequently asked questions in shelf life. Uh, I think for obvious reasons, shelf life, if you have a product that, that uh, ha- you want to have a, a, a full year shelf life claim on, you don't want to wait a full year to find out whether or not it has it or not. You want, you want to know as soon as possible. So because of, because of the staging gate nature of shelf life designs, everyone wants to know if it can be accelerated. Um, and there's, there's good news and bad news on that. And, uh, and because I'd like this, us to end this conversation on a good note, I'll start with the bad news. The, the, the bad news is that for anything that has a, uh, a biological component to its shelf life, so most commonly, you know, bacteria, yeast mold, et cetera, anything that has a biological component, it's not advisable to, to run an accelerated uh, simulation on. Um, and the reason being is that uh, biological organisms do not follow uh, like a simple mathematical equation that allows you to project with a high degree of accuracy how they will behave at, at higher and lower temperatures. You can accelerate growth of a bacteria to a certain point, but if you go too far with it, you kill it. <laughs> uh, you know, or and the same thing goes in, you know, in the other direction. You you can um, you can slow down the rate of, of an organism if you, but if you go beyond a certain point, typically around freezing, you 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 cease it entirely. You know, so for instance, like a frozen shelf life, if you were to try and accelerate that via a refrigerated shelf life, you would go from a product that has zero risk of microbial spoilage because it's frozen to a product that now is introducing the prospect of microbial spoilage, which which undermines what's really important for frozen shelf life, which is more more physical uh, and sensory degradation that can occur or vitamin uh, uh, depletion. So now, so that's the bad news is that for a lot of cases, if the product is otherwise microbially perishable, acceleration is not is not recommended. The good news is that, you know, as I mentioned before, if a product's below, you know, a certain water activity value or, or is otherwise not at risk for microbial spoilage, you can accelerate it because now you're looking at chemical processes. How fast does this vitamin degrade? How, how quickly does it does the oxidative uh, rancidity process occur? Uh, dehydration, you know, what's the moisture loss factor? Moisture loss is something that can be accelerated. Um, color changes, product separation, things of that nature are things that there is quite a bit more reliability when you increase the temperature with those things that you are accelerating the rate at which those chemical changes are occurring. So, you know, just give an example, if something's typically shelf stable, you know, stored at 22 to 25 degrees centigrade product and like a granola, let's go, granola is a good one, low water activity, uh, high oil content, likely to, you know, have uh, some issues with oxidative rancidity over time. You can move it from a 22 to 25 to a 35 degree or, you know, 45 degree acceleration, evaluate what the, um, how quickly it reaches oxidative rancidity, and then go back and calculate what that would project over an, an ambient shelf life. In those cases, it is recommended when you're when you're electing to go with an accelerated modeling that you do a real time portion parallel to that, and you use your accelerated data. So, for example, you would get a four x acceleration at forty five degrees in, in the previous example. So instead of running a twelve month study, you can run as short as a three month study to get your accelerated data. You should still run, albeit a smaller, you know, and and a streamlined version of the study real time. But you should go back when you get the twelve month data set for the real time. Go back and verify that it matches up um, and aligns with the uh, with the accelerated portion of it. And the reason being is even though you know you can via formulation project ex- accelerate extrapolate accelerated data on, and map it onto real time, there there are some misses there. Uh, it, it definitely increases the measurement to uncertainty of the testing itself and going back and verifying via real-time study is considered best practice and prudent.
And that, again, that would make sense. And I would think that you, like you said, you don't want to wait a year for something, but if you can, you know, get a, a 95 or whatever, 99% uh, gauge on it by accelerating it um, and then doing the other one simultaneously to kind of fill in those gaps, that ma- that makes sense. And I'd also make sense that you wouldn't accelerate it with the things that I would assume would include, you know, meats and, and produce and things that could could harm you. Yeah. Yeah, because in that case, you go from uh, the potential risk of a loss of precision to, to being out and out misleading. And, and so uh, you certainly sacrificing some accuracy and in, in precision with it in order to get an earlier read is, is, is tolerable uh, to an extent. But uh, in the case of accelerating a microbial foliage, that, that is ill-advisable and, and ultimately would lead to, in many cases, a misleading conclusion that would have people missing on their shelf life left, right, and center. Right, which we don't want. Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this um, with us. I obviously learned a lot that I didn't know coming into this, and um, you were able to explain it to. I would be one of the people that do- doesn't know the ins and outs of it, and I, I have a much firmer grasp of it now. Um, so again, we appreciate you uh, finding time to do this with us, Ben. Yes, my pleasure. Anytime. Please rate, review, and subscribe. To do that, go to the iTunes podcast or Spotify app on your phone and search for Unpacked with PMMI.